My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast comes at you thanks to Australia's finest purveyor of all things abrasive, Rob at Weber Abrasives. So after the show, check your stocks of grinder belts, hand sanding sheets, needle files and more and restock what you need at webers.net.au. Where the stocks are abrasive, but the owner isn't. That's right. <laughs> he's, for a guy who sells abrasives, he's very smooth. <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to this week, hey, Alex? I make the jokes, all right? <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I forgot you're supposed to be the funny one of the show. Right? <laughs> oh, God. I what have, a, um, yeah. I have had like a, a perfect storm of personal shit going on. So I've focused on just one thing all week. Um, and it has been a knife that I'm calling Heart of the Amazon. It's um, the fanciest, no, most ritzy knife I've ever made. Mm. Um, and it's got its name from the scales of the handle wood. Um, Snake wood. It's, it's yeah, it's it's funny. It's a common name in that part of the world in the Amazon where it comes from is not snake wood because snake wood is a type of tree that's funnily enough endemic to Western Australia. Mm. Um, but there's the the common more common name for it in the Amazon is bastard bread nut. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yep. But that's the wood a, that's so much of a cooler name than snake wood. Yeah, I know. Um, some some parts of the Americas call it Amazonian snakewood, um, but it's actually uh, more commonly referred to as the bastard bread nut, <laughs> which is hilarious and should be called that more often. But it's um, not necessarily rare, like a like a um, a tree that's going extinct or something like that. But the only part of the tree that is patterned that way is the heartwood which the tree is not that big so the heartwood is never usually in usable amounts so to find a tree that's actually got a decent sized heartwood section that you could actually get some wood out of is quite hard to find and so um, whenever it is harvested um, it takes up to 10 years to dry enough to be able to use or stabilize um so even after you find a piece, it's got to sit there for a decade before you can use it. And then you'll only ever get enough to make very small things. And one of the things that it's uh, famously used for is the uh, the frog on the bottom of a violin bow. Mm. And some of the finest violins in the world have had that just for its, not just its exclusivity, but its natural stability. And um, it takes a polish better than, almost every other wood you've, you'll find. Um, and that incredible pattern that it has looks like snakeskin or, or leopard skin, and, and the, the spalting through it kind of looks like uh, characters, like, mm. like it's got writing all over it. And yeah. it's, it, 
disgustingly the, exclusive piece of wood. I think this be- most beautiful piece I've ever seen made out of it was uh, made by Emmanuel Huiroga uh, on YouTube, who made this beautiful drop point hunter with it. Um, and mm. yeah, stunning, stunning wood. I think it's a, a testament to how hard it is to actually get a, a decent sized piece um, because for such a beautiful wood, you expect it to see it on knives all the time, but it's very hard to find a knife that's got it on there. There's only a few that I've managed to see. Mm. Um, and so to, when I was making this knife that was supposed to be a showpiece, like it was specifically ordered from me to be a, a showpiece, I thought, what's the most sort of you know wanky thing that I could have as a handle <laughs> material? And I mean, I could have done mammoth ivory, but who hasn't done mammoth ivory? You know, it's, it's it's almost bourgeois now. To yeah, have mammoth it seems ivory pretty on. commonplace almost. Like, yeah, when you, when you talk about high like, end knives. Yeah, and I've I've used some rare woods before, like spalted hackberry, cross cut spalted hackberry, and, and uh, cottonwood burl is hard to find, but it's not that hard to find. Um, so. I talked to my boy Ryan at Artway Fiddleback, and I'm like, "Dude, this is the situation. What do what do we got?" And uh, <laughs> he's like, "Oh yes, there is a wood. Legends speak of a wood." <laughs> um, so uh, he actually got me that quite some time ago, and it's been sitting in the special drawer of my wood cabinet. And I did the funny little skit on social media about it because I, it's been sitting there looking at me, and I'm like. I think is this the project I use it on? No, I'm not. No, it's not ready for that. It's not not fancy enough for this wood. Like I'm never gonna have another piece of this wood. <laughs> like realistically speaking, it's never gonna cross my desk again. Um, luckily, I did manage to have enough left over to make probably one more knife if mm. I'm careful. So you might see another one from me in the future. But that knife. As anyone who's seen it will know how much work it's got into it. So it's pretty much been my entire life. Uh, every waking hour has been working on that damn thing. So it's finally finished now and it'll be uh, shipping across to North America where its new owner will uh, take possession of it. So my um, song of the week this week is a collab. It's uh, two very famous artists got together to do it and that is Pink and Eminem of all people. <laughs> um, so, so the song is Won't Back Down. And it's freaking awesome. It's a real sort of fire up song. It's one of those ones that really gets your blood pumping and gets you feeling like you can take on the world, which I've needed a lot this week. So I've got a lot of pump up playlists and uh, that one is on all of them because <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those songs. Um, so, yeah, we hadn't didn't have any pink on the playlist. So there you no, go. strangely enough. Yeah. What about you, Big Fudge? What have you been up to this week? Bugger all. <laughs> Feels like bugger all. Um, so, went away for the weekend uh, to my girlfriend's place, and then when I got back on Monday morning, I woke up unable to breathe. Turns out I had the flu, fortunately not the Rona, but um, it really put a, a hole in my plans, because being unable to breathe and covered in body aches and headaches and all that kind of crap made working rather unpleasant. Um that that being said, I did manage to get a little bit of work done on, um, I had a friend who contacted me and he's like a, you know, really old friend of mine who had some last minute stuff that he needed me to do, uh, a sheath for one of his display daggers and a 
repair and frog making for a scabbard for a sword that he wears uh, to events. Um, okay. He does like not just in general. He does like show fighting and stuff like that. Um, cool. And so, yeah, he the <laughs> he'd bought this sword, and the scabbard was basically falling apart, and he didn't have any way to hang it from a sh- from a uh, belt. So he's like, "Can you help me?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" Uh, it's something I can do while I'm sick and laid up because leather work doesn't take that much energy. Um, I've also been working on a couple of secret projects that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but um, ooh, yeah, um, but yes, I will speak of them more in the future. My patrons already know. <laughs> They're not too different. Not too distant future. No, not too distant. No, not at all. It's creeping up. Ugh, slowly. Um, but yeah, so that's that's basically been everything. Um, I do, I, like, I have a whole bunch of uh, chisels that I want to make. I've got, like, all the Tagane just sitting there waiting for me to take a file to them. Um, I'm still, I've still got that hammer that I was talking about, the Viking crossbeam. Still haven't inlaid the bronze into it yet. Because every time I look at it, oh, I'm you like, decide you're going to do that. Yeah, yeah. I like I, <laughs> I keep I keep looking at it and kind of going. I just need to make like a, one more chisel in order to make it work. And then I'm like, oh, but then I need to make the chisel and heat treat the chisel and then do the. I'm like, fuck <laughs> this. Ugh. You ever heard the term yak shaving, Sam? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. How do you shave a yak? It's like, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> One bite at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but my song of the week actually uh, came from, I was listening to a guy on YouTube who did like 80 well-known guitar riffs, right? Like 80 best guitar riffs. And um, so I was listening to that and then I listened to his uh, 40 best acoustic guitar riffs and he had done an acoustic version of Drive by Incubus. Okay. And I was kind of like, man, I haven't heard that song in forever. So I immediately went and looked up <laughs> Drive by Incubus. And like, it's funny that the sound, the, the name of the song, almost no one will be able to remember what it's about. <laughs> like everyone knows the song. I guarantee you've heard it. But like, I couldn't even remember what the song was until I heard it. So um, it is a banger, though. It's an absolute banger and uh, definitely deserves a place on the playlist. So Drive by Incubus. Right. I I was never a big listener of Incubus. Well, yeah, it was really popular on the radio for a while. People back in the, you know, 90s and early 2000s will know. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it was one of my old favorites but it's just one that i haven't heard in so long and then you just suddenly get that kind of memory sparked i love it when you you sort of rediscover a song that you had like a passionate love affair with but had not listened to for so long that you like totally forgot that it existed and then you hear just a bit of it and yeah. that's enough to make everything flood back it's i like, had that happen with um the way by fastball yeah it's like hearing like, it again for the first time yeah yeah, yeah. but you already know the lyrics sort of yeah. thing it's like <laughs> it'd been hiding in this little compartment in the back of your brain yeah yeah that's it yes mm, excellent well we have Quite a few emails. Thank you, David. Mm. Um, <laughs> it never or we can do inspirations. What do you reckon? Um, 
I'll leave it up to you. What, what do you reckon? Uh, I reckon inspiration is going to be faster than emails. So. <laughs> yeah, let's let's slap out some in, slap out some inspirations. Who's slap inspiring them in the face. Um, slap them in the balls. So I went like I, I will admit that I've I've not been trolling social media as much as I used to uh, lately, but I happened to hit the search bar icon on my Instagram and immediately was met with a photo or of a the crispest grind lines I have seen in a very long time. <laughs> it was you know how this, you just see something and you're like that has to be done by machine but no it was done freehand by a person um it was lin ray's forging <laughs> well no but we all know that's true <laughs> um and it's a knife maker that i hadn't heard before i heard of before which like it's becoming less and less surprising for me these days like i used to be so in touch with the knife making community but now it feels like Every second knife maker I meet, someone I haven't heard of before, but are like amazingly talented. Um, and his work, like he doesn't do overly complex work. None of it's super like out there shapes or you know like wild Damascus patterns. But his repeatability and cleanliness of work, both in forging and in grinding, is insane. He's like a human CNC machine. It's, hmm. It is actually quite quite impressive. Uh, and he has this real subtle eye for design. He's really good at getting like shapes that look comfortable and they look practical and really nice. Uh, and immediately gave me inspiration for one of the pieces I want to make for my uh, Journeyman Bladesmith set. So um, I had to immediately put him on the list of my inspirations. And his name is Nick Bachtel. Uh, he goes by uh, Bachtel Forging Company, so it's B-A-C-H-T-E-L, Forging Company, yeah. all one word, on Instagram. Hmm. I'm just looking him up, because I have not heard of him. Yeah, no, again, it was just like... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, if you go down through his stuff, like, he's made tomahawks, and they have that same clean look. Like, everything looks perfect. Crispy. It's so clean. And like cleanliness for me, like if I say your work is clean, that is like one of my highest, like my highest compliments that I can give you. Cleanliness is next to samliness. Exactly right. But he makes batches of like 40 daggers or like 30 knives at a time. That's insane. And he hand, yeah. he hand forges them to within a couple mil of each other. And then, you know, like, grinds them true. But, like, holy crap, his repeatability. Like, <laughs> I just, it, it, it boggles my mind. Because originally when I, when I came across this stuff, obviously I just saw the post-grinding stuff and I thought he was a knife maker who did, like, grinding out, like, just ground out all of his work. But no, he forges everything to shape first. Um, and that yeah. just impressed me. Like, it, and, yeah, no, I just love his style. It's very kind of tradition like semi-traditional old west but modern at the same time if that makes sense mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> just clean just just clean um but yeah definitely well worth a check out if you're interested in like learning more about how clean someone can make something look <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but who's so, been inspiring um... you 
Mine was also actually found from hitting the, the, the search bar on Instagram. It's a good way to actually pick people up. But sometimes you, sometimes the thing, you win. <laughs> yeah, the thing, the thing that in, um, caught my eye was the quality of the photography first. It is a knife maker, and he is Australian, uh, I found out. But his knife photography is stellar. For starters, that's not what's inspired me about him. Um, but good heavens, just especially um, like this guy is so good at making knives that he's not afraid to do those extreme close-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, and the photo that I saw was an extreme close-up of sort of a semi-exploded view of a, um, a fit-up he was doing of um, just the, the decorative part of a spacer in a handle that it fit up that he was doing where he'd put some looks like stainless and some maybe polished Buffalo horn in the center. Um, in just to space two types of wood on a, on a knife or a kitchen knife he was doing, uh, one of those big brisket slayers. <laughs> um, but then after I was amazed by the quality of the pho- photography and the, the lighting and the, the capturing of reflection and things like that, I then noticed just how crispy the fit-up was of this and how small these parts were and how well-finished each of them had been done, like just monstrously good. Mm. And then I went and looked at the rest of his stuff and he does just amazing knife after amazing knife, just batches them out. The guy does incredible work. And he's a fellow Aussie, and I'd never never actually heard of him before. Um, so I immediately started following him, and I mentioned him to uh, a friend. And I said, oh, you've got to check this guy out. And he goes, oh, yeah, this guy's a – I know him. He's a, a fan of your favorite steel. <laughs> and I'm like, what, 1084? And he goes, yeah, he loves 1084. And he said it like – meaning behind it i'm like what do you mean he goes he sent me sent me a post and i found out that not only is this guy an amazing knife maker and a great photographer and a fan of 1084 um he's a man after my own heart he he likes to troll the trolls (laughs) (laughs) he's so good at what he does he he posted a photo where a, a knife he was working on that was made of 1084 and 15 and 20 damascus he had hardened it to 68.5 Rockwell. Jesus. That's impressive. The manufacturer's specifications for 1084 is that they can go up to 65. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, all of the, the keyboard warriors had jumped on him, telling him that it, his hardest hardness tester is out of whack or not needs to be calibrated because that's not, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. And he showed him it is. And, uh, with, with the confidence of someone who's done this before. And, um, I just love that because I use 1084 a lot. I'm a big fan of 1084 when I want to make something that's freaking bulletproof because i know that with a basic setup you can achieve amazing results with it with an advanced setup you can achieve even better results with it Mm. and it's predictable it's just it's a it's a behaving steel you don't get any nasty surprises with it and if you're worried about oxidation you can it, it takes an acid wash or a stone wash really well and it does a really good job and i've put some 1084 knives into the hands of customers who have 
absolutely mistreated them horribly and they've held up beautifully over the years and so i'm a big fan of it but you hear a lot of people poo poo it because they think of it as a kitty steal it's a basic <laughs> it's a beginner steal it's a beginner steal but it's actually it's quite a remarkable steal and then i saw that post at 68.5 rockwell mm-hmm. and out of 1084 and i thought this is this guy gets it like it was he used a a, a fully calibrated tested um, hardness tester from Gamerco mm-hmm. and confirmed it multiple times. Like you can't get much more proof than that. Like he would put in the 65 test plate that it comes with, mm-hmm. confirm that the needles like bang on and then test his knife and multiple places. And it had been uh, like fully cleaned. He wasn't hitting scale or anything. This is, mm-hmm. it was sparkly clean. Um, and so, this is a guy that chases perfection, not just in the knives that he makes, but the the steel that he makes them from and also the way he presents them with his photography. And he's a fellow Aussie. And that level of commitment to the work has just absolutely inspired me because it's one of those things, there's, there's heaps of people that make knives out there, heaps and heaps and heaps, but not all of them love it. And I mean through and through love it. I'm talking the people who go to bed thinking about knives, wake up thinking about knives, spend their entire day making knives and chasing that perfection and chasing getting better. And every knife they make is taken as a chance to get better. You know, the Niels Vandenbergs of the world who mm-hmm. for them, it is their life, their world. And when I see somebody who's that committed to it, it just oh, makes my heart flutter. Makes my heart flutter, Sam. <laughs> and to find out that it's an Aussie just makes me feel patriotic. <laughs> and plus, he likes sticking it to the keyboard warriors. And, well, you know, that just that just hits me close to home. That's like my whole MO. So mm-hmm. um, the guy's name is Ben Anderson. Uh, and on Instagram, he goes by NV underscore blades. So N for Norton. V for Victor underscore blades. And I highly recommend you follow him if you're not already for some reason. Um, Even if it's just to, because like not everybody takes the greatest photos of their knives, even if it's just for that, Mm -hmm. you know, like hitting Ben's level that he's at, that takes time to get to, but you can start working on, you know, looking at a really good example of really good knife photography uh, and go go from there because oh, just the way he captures reflection, the way he uses light, uh, the way he really shows off the, the handle woods that he uses. and It's just it's beautiful, crisp, clean work and deserves to get displayed properly and he does such a good job of doing it. So uh, he's just an inspirational fellow all around. So, uh, yeah, hopefully he hears this because... He needs to hear it, Sam. <laughs> or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he knows. Ma- a man who can make knives like that, he probably knows. I think I've met Ben at some point. I can't remember. Have you? Yeah. Might have maybe been at a symposium. symposium or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he clearly takes it very seriously, so he's probably at the events. More than likely. Not like me, a curmudgeonly hermit that <laughs> uh, shies away from any public interaction. Man, a nice set of chisels, too. 
He does. He did. Everything he makes is great. <laughs> so, yeah. Go follow Ben, guys. He There is no way in any world that is fair that he should have so few followers. So, pile on. Do it. All right, so let's get into some emails. Yeah. Our first one's from Leighton. And he says, hi again. Just looking for some advice on using an old file for the 48-hour challenge. Thinking of welding on some threaded rod to the tang and leaving it hardened so as to eliminate the heat treatment process completely. Any tips or suggestions? Perfectly valid way to do it. I'm, I would probably temper it back a little bit more than from where a normal <laughs> file sits. But that's just, it's a file's going to be in the vein of like, 1095 w2ish mm-hmm. so you could stick it in an oven at like 190c or 200c for a couple of hours and probably do it just fine yeah um, i mean um just Michael, make sure when you weld, weld the tang on that you don't uh, de- detemper it yeah i mean michael morris who's a famous knife maker from the states who i actually own one of his knives uh only makes knives out of hardened files like he doesn't do any heat treating himself but basically he that's what he does he just tempers the file um and yeah. then grinds a blade out of well it. it's already been professionally heat treated if it's a <laughs> exactly. if it's a good file <laughs> um but yeah no perfectly legitimate but yeah like alex says make sure you you know <laughs> make sure you don't detemper the whole thing when you're welding on the the thing went welding on the rod yeah and post pre and um, post heat the the welding area. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you one thing that I see a lot of people do. If you if you do a weld, like a, a lot of people, because it's a little weld to weld some threaded rod onto a tang. It's mm. very small weld, and people think oh, it's a small weld. It's quick. I'm going to get on my work. So they'll do the weld and then they'll dip it in water, cool it mm. off. Don't do that. That's really bad. Let it air cool. <laughs> yeah. Think of it. Think of it like your, you know, your your business area when you get out of the shower. Let it air dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, even, like even if you wrap the file itself in like a wet rag and then preheat with a blowtorch, do your weld, and then mm-hmm. post heat with the blowtorch, like get it up to critical and hold it there for a little bit, just to because it is one of those things that. That area, you, it's it's going to take a lot of the brunt of any use that that dagger gets. So you need that weld to be strong. Not that we hope the dagger gets any use outside of you know. Well, you never great. know. You, you you know how it is. You you, you get to Macca's and they're out of the the, the, the smoothie machine's broken, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's the third time that week, and mm-hmm. you know things just add up, Sam. <laughs> Sure. So you go out and shank a soda making person. <laughs> Randomly. But I call them soda jerks. That's an old fashioned term. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Alright, so hopefully hopefully that helps Leighton. Don't stab people. <laughs> make make it a full size farrier's rasp. Go hard or go home. Hey man, like I mean I did that for my first one. I made mine out of a uh, a carpenter's float. So yeah. It yeah. can be done. It's just it's so convenient. Like so many files are already conveniently dagger sized. It's just they haven't they just need a tip. Yeah, exactly. Just just the tip, just to see just how it feels. Tip and an edge. Yeah. 
So um, our next email, or next several emails come from David. (laughs) He says, I am debating whether or not to take my blacksmithing slash knife making from a self-sustaining hobby to an actual source of income. So my uh, my questions all revolve around that idea. Would you say it is necessary to... uh, Sorry, what would you say is necessary to do before taking this business part-time or full-time? Easy. Buy my ebook. If you want to become a millionaire as a like if you want to, if you want to get make a million dollars as a bladesmith, start with two. <laughs> Just like um the the legitimate thing is like Alex and I will both agree, I think, that if if you're not well established within the knife making community as like a really big name already, making your living as a bladesmith is possible but you have to limit what your expectations of that life are going to be um you are not going to be financing three cars and you know a four bedroom well, depends, three bathroom house <laughs> on, on your knife making he doesn't business. say necessarily full time though he just says an actual source of income so it could be like you can monetize a weekend oh that's just true i mean like if that's what you're looking for then like I if mean, you just want to make it sort of worthwhile yeah. to do it financially, um, you know, spend a couple of evenings a week working, uh, making stuff, and maybe one of your weekend days, and do weekend markets. You can you can yeah. make a good bit of extra cash at a weekend market. And like the biggest thing is is it like income versus outlay. So if you're self sustaining at the moment, so you're saying you're self sustaining hobby already you need to increase your production over the time that you have. Like, so say you've only got a weekend to work. If you're making enough in that weekend to make like ends meet as far as your materials and like consumables, then you can't make more time. So you need to make more money in that time. (laughs) So it's difficult because it's one of those things where it's a very long answer to that question. Like it's complex. Like a, it's 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 such a long answer that we couldn't even do an episode on it. It would have to be like a series that goes for like 10 episodes. Yeah. It's a very complex thing because there's so many factors involved um, with every aspect of doing it. But the main thing is to start selling your work in whatever capacity you can do. And because it's already a hobby, right? And a hobby is going to cost you money. So like... If it starts earning you a little, but it's, you know, still not turning a profit, but it's like being less of a detriment, that's a start. Yeah. And it le- and it starts giving you data. And that's the thing you really want to get in the early days. You want to get data. And what I mean by data is learn what is it that people will actually buy. Um, how much can you, uh, like Sam was saying, like how close can you get to, at least earning what you've been spending on it um, and how, you know, what things can you do to make that gap a bit bigger, like, uh, or smaller, I should say, like maybe you find a different source of the material that you're using that's cheaper. Like uh, maybe if you, you'll find that if you get it in bulk, you can get it for half the price, which means that all of a sudden your overheads are half for that mm-hmm. project. 
um, maybe you can come up with jigs to make things like my hairpins. I use jigs for those, which speeds up production very, very much. And tooling um, is a big one. Sort of like if, if you're currently running like a, a, like a two by 36, like wood sander or something, or a multi-tool on a, on a belt, on a bench grinder, then upgrading to a two by 48 or a two by 72 is going to increase your grinding speed and accuracy by, you know, infinite amounts investing in something like a fly press or a hydraulic press or a power hammer if you have the space is going to increase your forging productivity by a million degrees sometimes you got to spend money to make if the the way i started out when i first did it is i just tried to make a bit of everything and i took it to markets we actually had I, i lived in a city at the time and so i had a market that i could go to that was very easy and it was a suitcase rummage really and you could just sit on the ground with a suitcase and i turned a suitcase into a display stand that opened out Mm. um which people thought was very novel but i had everything on there i had stake turners and key rings and bottle openers and hairpins and everything i could think of to make i put there and i just took note of what sold and what didn't and to this day i still actually have in a box somewhere some of the original stuff that never sold (laughs) And so the stuff that sold, I made more of and I made new variants of um, to sort of switch it up. And the stuff that just didn't sell, I didn't do. And over the course of six months, I had a really good handle on what people who went to that market would buy. And I went from not even making back what I spent to get a stall at the market to getting like 300 bucks in a a morning Mm. and... It, it only took about six months because I used that data. I just experimented and I kept going where it worked and I stopped where it didn't. I went the stupid route, decided to advertise myself as a custom knife maker to people and, you know, make custom orders. And so therefore took commissions. And while those commissions allowed me to afford the things that I wanted to buy, like all of the tooling that I wanted to buy, it drove me fucking mental. <laughs> yeah. Ah, don't take commissions, kids. It's a trap. No, don't do it. It's a it's a gateway drug. It is. To death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to depression. Death by heart attack. Um, so yeah, once you once you've worked out what people are gonna be buying, work out how to make that stuff as fast as possible. So you know, pre-preparing material in bulk. Um, like I worked out with the hairpins, I needed to cut thirty-two centimeter lengths of quarter inch round stock. So I would just spend an hour cutting like this two meter lengths that I was getting down into those 32 centimeter lengths pre-prepared ready to go um and stuff like I even found out things like uh on some a project stake turners I would need to taper the ends but it was actually faster to put the stock initial stock in a drill and put it against the grinder and just grind it to a point um because I didn't have to light the forge to do that so I was just, while I was cutting stock and the forge was off, I'd have a whole day where I would just prepare the stock with these tapers at the end. And all of a sudden it cut down the time that I would have to, to do that. Because uh, you sort of think, oh, it's just forging a, a point on quarter inch round stock. You do that in one heat. But you have to light the forge. So yeah. if you're spending a day where you're not lighting the forge, you can do it without it. So mm-hmm. come up with ways to do it faster and <laughs> it ends up making you more money. In the uh, in the world of business, there is no such thing as cheating. Just just have to yeah, say that. Yeah. Like 
especially when you're starting out throw the idea of like not being a real blacksmith out the fucking window because like the the whole idea of like you have to forge your blade perfectly to shape or it's you know like grinding uh, points in on round bar is fucking cheating nah (laughs) whatever makes it faster whatever makes it faster and easier is the right way (laughs) yeah um Sure, like as a hobbyist or as a as a craftsperson and stuff like that, having the ability to do those things, sure, hold pride in that. But if you're going to make it, a, like if you're going to try and make money out of it, there is no such thing as cheating. Like just, just. Well, nobody was insinuating that I was cheating. Well, I mean, <laughs> I've had several people insinuate that I've cheated on making things. Like, oh, using a press. Yeah, but several cheating. There, no matter what you're doing. Several people are going to tell you that you're a dick. Exactly, and that's another thing you have tell to them give back. Up. Yeah, that's another thing you have to give you're up. You're going to have a <laughs> no matter what you do. There are going to be people thinking, telling you you're doing it wrong. Um, but when you're trying to make money out of it and make your living out of it and feed your family with it, you do whatever makes you money and you know maintains your your standing. That's that's it. It's as simple as that. So. Um, there's a lot of people that think using tooling jigs are, are you know, taking the, the real craftsmanship out of it. And it's just not the case. I mean, industrial forging has been using tooling jigs since the dawn of machinery. Yes. So you can you can do it with a bloody hardy tool and a hammer. And batch work is your friend. Yeah. When when yeah. I make when it's I not make, your arms, friend, you'll get very tired. Yeah, when I make when I make hammers, I don't make just one hammer at a time. I I have to run at least two billets, if not three or four at a time, in order to make it viable. Because if I'm running one hammer billet at a time, it takes me about the same amount of time to make one hammer than it, as it does two. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because the way my tooling set up, that's just how it works. So yeah, just like you've got to monopolize your time. Because people talk about too many irons in the fire, but they don't talk about just the right amount of irons in the fire. That's what you want to try and get because there's such a thing as too little irons in the fire because fuel adds up. But the most precious resource that you have, which is going to both earn you or lose you the most money, is how you spend your time. Yep. Think of think of it that way, especially if you're doing this as a side hustle and trying to get it. You know, your your spare time is going to be preciously limited if you're running a day job at the same time yeah don't push yourself too hard because you will burn out if you're working five days a week and then two days a week in the forge that's seven days a week of work it doesn't last Mm -hmm. long yeah (laughs) so but like i said we could go on about that for many episodes so we'll go on to your next email (laughs) it's it's still david he's back He says, I know that getting a decent customer base is important because you can only make as many knives as you want, uh, but because you can make as many knives as you want, but if you don't have the customers to sell to, then you're pretty well stuck. How would you grow your customer base to ensure regular purchases of your products? Really sounds like you need to buy Alex's book. (laughs) Yeah, it's all in my book. I actually did email him back and be like, oh man, it'd be great if somebody wrote a very detailed ebook about this. Um, but really you want to read community outreach. I mean, we, we live in an age of social media. It has never been easier to get your stuff in front of people. Hell no. It's, it's crazy. Like even just 10 years ago, this was so much more difficult. And now you just find a Facebook group and then it'll come up in the suggestions of 20 more similar Facebook groups. 
actually, I mean, if I had to point to anyone recently that has kind of epitomized that for me, our old boy Nils, right? Nils Ergren, who mm. used to be a co-host on the show, actually helped us start this show, and some of you may remember, he has been skyrocketing, like, in social mm. media recently. And a, a big part of that has been the fact that he has been collaborating with every maker under the sun and getting his work in front of as many noses as he can. Um, you know, like, he's he's been featured on like steel he's been featured on that works he's been featured everywhere he's been at torbjorn armand's place and so therefore people know about him because they've seen him and that's how you grow like i grew by you know collaborating with fellow makers with reaching out to people in the abs to you know posting on instagram and tagging people it happens it is it is one it is one way to do it um it's not the only way to do it though because um like I, I certainly haven't done that and, and I'm about to hit 10,000 followers on Instagram and my technique has always been, um, I call it Steve Martining it because um, <laughs> when Steve Martin first got into comedy, he sucked. <laughs> Nobody, like he just bombed at every event that he did and everybody thought, well, this guy is just going to disappear as quickly as he appeared. But every event that he bombed at, he just trashed those jokes and tried something new and then eventually found what worked Mm -hmm. uh, just by trying new things. And then by using the system, he just worked at getting good, just really good. And then people started coming to his shows more and he turned up. And that's every project I work on, I try and make it more redonkulous than the last one. And it's worked. I don't collaborate with people. I don't appear on other people's shows. I actively abuse people on my YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am a cantankerous, curmudgeonly prick of a guy, and yet it's just from doing consistently better work for me. Yeah, but yeah, also compared to other people, I'm still in, in kindergarten. But for me, each of my projects is better than my last projects. Yeah, but also, like, of course, posting that to social media, getting it out in the public is kind of the important bit. Because yeah. if you're not showing your work to anyone, yeah. no one sees it. And so, therefore, no one cares. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You know, find those find those relevant social media areas. And, I mean, it, it's, it's easy to get sort of caught into, like, a loop. A lot of people, like knife makers, for example, they'll get their start making, say, chef knives. And they get a, a handle on making chef knives and they start getting confidence in making chef's knives. Um, but they're competing with only other chef knife makers. Hmm. So you can use the same skill set and the same tools and the same materials to make hunting knives. And all of a sudden, if you start advertising those knives in hunting groups, as well as doing the chef knives, you've suddenly doubled your audience. And then you find another group that uses knives and, and start making that sort of knife and, you know, expand into there and it gets you known. Yeah, and Alex points out a very good point there, which is don't just advertise to other makers. Don't just post in maker yeah. groups. Like if you're making knives and stuff, we all want to show off our knives to other makers and stuff like that and say, hey, look at this cool thing I made. But other makers aren't the ones that are buying your stuff. It's the people that use that stuff that are buying it. So therefore, if you're making chef's mm. knives, market it in cooking areas so like people where people Mm -hmm. are making food and need knives uh hunters 
if you're in a market to hunters, market to hunters. Don't market to hunting knife makers because <laughs> they already make there's knives. Also some, <laughs> there's also a heap of great groups on social media that are specifically for people who make handmade goods to sell to people who want to buy only handmade goods. Yeah. Because um, there is a growing, growing desire for people to avoid buying mass-produced things um, the world over. And there's even groups that uh, I've posted in, in the past that are specifically designed for posting in if you make handmade goods but live in a town that is smaller than, I think, 3,000 people or something. Mm-hmm. And given that the town I live in has fewer than 300 people, it is pretty small. So it's... Uh, that sort of thing, people like the exclusivity of buying a handmade something, whatever it is, from somebody who lives in this remote place and is just doing it the hard way. Um, and that that is growing. That trend is growing massively. So look for those groups and people will help find you. And, you know, if you impress them, then they'll tell their friends about you. Yeah. In the end, don't do what I do <laughs> because I'm terrible at marketing my work. The only reason I've been successful in recent years is because I make blacksmithing tools. <laughs> and and so, hacking he- YouTube videos? Well, you know, occasionally. Once or twice. Once or twice, like every six months or so, apparently, at this point. But um, much like your last question, David, this could be a very long answer. So hopefully that is a, a taste test for you. But uh, short answer, buy my ebook. <laughs> <laughs> Our next email comes from David. <laughs> Surprise. It's been so long. He says, right now, I, I work on custom orders and batches of knives. What did we just say, David? <laughs> no custom orders. Break the rules, David. We're disappointed in you. Uh, and batches of knives with a little bit of blacksmithing on the side for farmers markets and vendors markets. Is there a benefit from doing all of this or am I possibly spreading myself too thin by doing all of this in the same time? I realize that this may be a very individualized question since every business is different, but any insight you may able to give is pretty appreciated. Uh, So it goes back to what we said in the question before last, you know, try a few different things, see what sticks and work that area. But one different aspects that we didn't cover before is that you've got to enjoy doing it Mm. if you find something that works and sells but you hate doing it you may as well just be working a day job that's why i don't do commissions anymore that's why i can't do commissions Mm -hmm. anymore it's because i yeah it takes the joy some people love doing commissions they thrive on commissions i can't do it (laughs) yeah kyle's great at it um but like if it makes you happy that's great. That's why you're doing the work for yourself thing. Because one day your boss made a request of you that you like, that was the last straw and you're like, I quit. Mm-hmm. Or you, at least in your head, you say that and you start thinking, how can I make my hobby earn enough money so I don't have to drag my ass to this hellish place anymore. <laughs> um, so don't turn it into a new day job that you hate and can't stand going to. So you've got to enjoy it. None of us, none of us do this because we have to. We do this because no, we want. To. God no, you'd have to be insane. <laughs> like, like this, this. <laughs> if if any knife maker on the planet was like, you know, it was just a day job, I'd call them nuts because <laughs> none of them are making a living out of it. Like, not 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 unless they're like really good. And if they're really good at it, normally they it's because they love it, <laughs> and they've been doing it for a very it's long that, time. Um, you know, like when you're a kid and your mum said that she'd put a sprinkle of love in her cookies, mm-hmm. 
It was just because she liked making cookies. So we put a sprinkle of love in our knives. Yeah. So, but uh, it is possible. You just got to, if you don't love it, it won't be possible. Even if it does work, it will only work for a certain amount of time before you snap, before you fold like a BJJ opponent. (laughs) Collapse like a flan in a cupboard. And uh, our next email comes from David. Oh, my God. I'm surprised. (laughs) He says, here's another question for you to add to my section. (laughs) (laughs) It's an entire show about David at this point. We should just get him on and say, here, we're not interviewing you. You just get to ask us questions. Microphone is yours. (laughs) Um, He said, I left my quenching oil, Horton's K, in the shed over the winter, at which point it froze. It got to negative 40. So everything was very frozen. Uh, And it doesn't matter if it's Celsius or Fahrenheit at that point. It's the same. Yeah. Um, He said, will the oil still be good to use? Yes. That's a good question. I don't think it changes the chemical structure. Although. It's a petroleum-based oil. It's a petroleum-based oil. It's fine. So natural oils can go bad from... um, getting below a certain temperature. You'll notice if you've ever had a bottle of olive oil in your cupboard and you live in a cold area. Mm-hmm. When you bought it, it was nice and clear. And then that cold morning happened and it's never cleared again. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's It'll still be fine, but, you know, it, it's just never the same. But, yeah, petroleum-based oil, yeah, is, that's interesting. Doesn't change? Not, not as far I, as I think I'm Sam's at Sam's knowledge on this will only be theoretical because he lives in Perth. Well, yeah, I mean, this is true. But, like, <laughs> theoretical knowledge should be enough at this point. Uh, as far as I'm aware, petroleum-based oils, when frozen, don't have uh, any negative effects. It gives you a, a good idea of how freaking cold it gets where he is in Canada because um, it gets to about negative 10 C um, here. Mm-hmm. And the canola oil, that'll freeze. Rice bran oil, that'll freeze. But my Horton's K never does. <laughs> it doesn't change. It stays perfectly the same, uh, even down to negative 10 Celsius, which I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, about 18 cubits. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's a ridiculous temperature system. I'm putting it out there. Makes no sense. Oh, no. Celsius makes perfect sense. Water freezes at zero and boils at 100. That's a nice scale. Goddamn. Anyway. (laughs) Next email comes from Nick. And he says, hey, Alex and Sam and potential guest. No guest this time, Nick. He says, long time listener, first time emailer. First off, just want to say a massive thank you for your efforts into this podcast. It has been enjoyable listening to you guys explain your crafts and how a person can best achieve a high standard in their own work. By far, the best thing about this podcast is the introduction to Ryan at Otway Fiddleback. It seems I'm starting to collect beautiful timber rather than make anything anymore. (laughs) I can can relate to that. He says, one question, mainly for you, Sam, although feel free to jump in with your physics slash engineering advice, Alex. I'm about to build my own Preston, and I have watched your video quite a few times to take in as much information as I can. If you could go back and change anything about Preston, what would it be? Is there anything you would do differently to make it more efficient? 
It says, mainly for creating Damascus billets, but may dabble in the axe game in the future. I promise I won't steal the Preston name. <laughs> Cheers, heaps, gents, Nick. Well, thanks, Nick. Um, I mean, Alex is just as, you know, good to answer this question as I am, because he's made a couple of forging presses over the years. Um, that video that I put up might help, but it was for a much smaller press um, yeah. than Preston is. Preston's a, a honking great boy. Yeah, and like the big thing about Preston is that he's not a he's not a forging press. He's a log splitter press that you know I adapted, or my dad actually adapted for forging. Um, but like, as far as like, what would I change? could like make him pedal driven maybe <laughs> i i've been toying with i'm the amazed idea. you still haven't frankly i've been toying with the idea but i honestly never run into a situation where it would be any more advantageous than what i've got to be honest i get just as much control Fair. and and i don't work anything that requires two hands um yeah like it's he's not it's, like 20 tons isn't quite enough to work billets that would require two hands to manipulate <laughs> not with that attitude <laughs> I mean, I suppose I could, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, the, the big thing is it's cost versus effectiveness. The whole idea behind Preston was that it was a cheap alternative to a 25 ton Anyang press and a 25 ton Anyang press was going to cost me about 12 grand. Uh, Preston cost me 1500, mm. um, all finished. So like it's, it's a huge cost difference. So would I change anything? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know um i made the dies interchangeable i can make new dies anytime i like um the the only downsides to preston is obviously is he's not accurate he's got a lot of slop in the head both you know laterally and also like uh, up and down um because it is a log splitter it's not a production forging press so mm. you don't go into it with expecting you know like pneumatic precision out of it uh, you would you, you if you want precision cutting dies you're gonna have to make spring dies uh which liam hoffman had a really good video where he showed some of the spring dies the astros 50 ton press um but they're like an enclosed system that you put into the press and the press just pushes on the system um and i've thought about making those but again yeah. i don't have a mill or anything like that to really make those to be that accurate so what's the point it does enough work for me. I've punched dozens of hammer eyes with him, which would work just as well for axes. Um, I've forged hundreds of pounds of Damascus at this point. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, no, he serves his purpose. He does his, he does his job. If I, if I wanted anything else than Preston, I would just buy a better press. Um you know that's that's it like the the only thing that would improve him is if it was a h-frame press which like the amount of effort and energy that would go into making a h-frame press out of preston would be ridiculous i just don't have the time or energy yeah um oh i'm drawing a mental blank on his name the woods man oh peter burt no australian woods man <laughs> aaron we've Finn. had him on the show uh, Aaron Finn. Sorry, Aaron. Um, Aaron actually has been making a, uh, converting a log splitter into an H-frame press. He has. 
uh, I've been watching his progress with it on Instagram, um, which is why it's funny. I can't remember his name because it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm fucking tired. But (laughs) he's been doing a bang up job with it. Like it looks really good. It's uh, like a little like eight ton like mine. Yeah. Um, But the H frame construction is it just gives you so much more rigidity, reliability um, and indexability Mm. of those dies. So you can sort of find it's still not a replacement for a professionally made forging press, but it's, it's a, it's a halfway point between a log splitter press and, and that. For sure. So it depends how good of a welder are you, Nick? (laughs) Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, if I really wanted to, the the big thing is that if I wanted to go that route, I'd basically just take all the hydraulics off of Preston, throw that frame away and build a new frame. Like there's no point in using Mm -hmm. that part of the frame anymore. Uh, And if I was Mm -hmm. going that far, I may as well have just bought the hydraulic cylinder and the motor separately and then made the frame around it rather than buying a hydraulic, like a forging, uh, a log spreader press in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I would have done that, but I'm not much of a welder and I could not be bothered. (laughs) Well, hopefully it gives you some food for thought, Nick. So our next email comes from Trace. And he says, I am probably opening a can of worms with this question. (laughs) It seems like just as varied as anvils are, 2x72 grinders are just as varied. Lots of different brands out there with various levels of what they provide from parts kits to fully assembled. While each brand of grinder has a slightly different body construction, tracking wheel, motor, and switch, one thing that I've noticed is that the variety of arm accessories are not all that different. So my question is about all of these different accessories. While each brand offers their own version of an accessory arm, solid construction, tube construction, 2-inch, 1.5-inch, etc., I was wondering how generic the accessories are could i use brand a 2x72 grinder and accessory arm but use brand b accessory i.e flat platen large wheel small wheel service grinder etc thank you as always for the show and the fountain of knowledge that you guys provide and for entertaining questions to help those of us less knowledgeable keep up the awesome work yeah thanks, thanks for the question trace the short answer so, is yes uh, <laughs> well it, it's it's more like a it's got like a little bit of a lilt at the end. It's like, yes. <laughs> Cause different grinders have their, this, the offset of the tool to the tool arm at different widths. Yeah. So the, the, the wheels and platen have to line up. Um, it's most of the time going to be within tracking range. Um, but some grinders have weird, profiles <laughs> i mean like i i bought the obm uh small wheel attachment um which the oregon blade maker um make uh, oregon blade maker make a grinder um but they're in america and there's no way i was going to buy an obm grinder because i already had my fire ant but i bought the small wheel attachment and then i just made an arm for it because the fire ant grinder uses a 50 mil square uh tooling arm and i have 50 mil square tubing coming out my rear so and yeah it, it I've got was a cream for that. <laughs> uh it was like it was about 20 mil too narrow to the the tracking so like the tracking was actually 20 mil outside the uh the obm uh fitment so all i did was get a 20 mil plate drill a couple of holes through it and then extend the bolts out so that it was then in line with my wheels yeah so, so like, with some modification you can you can pull some stuff off yeah, I mean, like it. 
literally you can use any attachment as long as it's as long as you can make an arm that makes it in line with your tracking you're fine mm. the actual business end of the tooling arm is where the, the everything happens so yeah. it, it's it comes down to when you buy a tooling sometimes it comes with the tooling arm Mm. Um, so in that case, you may have to do some modification, but it's the, the, the functionality of them is going to be all the same. Um, just to, with a couple of caveats, like some surface grinder attachments are very specifically built around particular grinders. Surface grinder um, attachments are like their own fucking mess. <laughs> and also it comes down to, uh, motor power and the VFT, VFD being used and the total uh belt speed that can be achieved by some Mm -hmm. um parts sometimes will outstrip the rating of the bearings used in certain parts yeah because different bearings have different caps of what they can take if you don't have a vfd do not buy a small wheel attachment because (laughs) like any small wheel attachment comes with the tiny little bearings and you need to run those fairly slow (laughs) Those things are fidget spinner bearings and they are not designed to go that hard. Yeah, no. Um when I when I bought the OBM thing, like it came with a big sheet of paper that said, Do not run this above certain surface mm. a certain amount of surface feet per minute. And I'm like, well, that's a good thing I've got a <laughs> I've got a VFD. Yeah, so that's why I said it's not necessarily the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So it's yes with exceptions. Yes. <laughs> but more or less, if you're careful with it and you've got a little bit of fabrication skills up your sleeve, you can make pretty much anything work with anything. And I've, Frankie is pretty much proof of that. Oh, yeah. And, I, and like, I've made my own platens and stuff for my grinder, like, mm. just out of scrap metal. Uh, I made a radius Yeah, go platen. back and watch his straight rays of video. <laughs> yeah, God yeah. damn. That exactly. thing was monstrous. Exactly. So, like, you can, you can get away with it. Yeah. So, uh, hopefully that helps Trace. And, uh, yeah, let us know how you go. <laughs> and our final question for this week is from Lucas. He says, hey, boys, Lucas Mulek here. I'm getting into making riveted chain mail in the European 4-in-1 pattern, and I'm just starting into the hobby as yet another ADHD adventure. What tools would be ideal to start with this? Uh, side note, I've already devoured as much YouTube content as I can, and know that I can just buy some needle-nose pliers and nail bolt cutters, uh, but I am a glutton for punishment and would love to make my own tooling. I have. I was wondering as to your setups and perhaps some photos would be awesome. So I've got a, a confession to make. I've never made riveted mail. I've only ever made butted mail. I've made a bit of butted mail. I've also taken apart a fair bit of riveted mail. Um, like being in the medieval reenactment community, I come into contact with riveted mail a lot. Um, and it is very different to making butted mail. <laughs> oh yeah. Because, yeah. The, because the ends have to overlap. You can't cut them like you would normally cut butted mail. Like you can't just make a whole bunch of rings uh, or make a, like a, a spiral on a mandrel and then cut down the length because then when you actually overlap the ends, you'll end up with ovals rather than circles. Um, mm. So you've actually got basically got to cut them oversize and then shrink them down with the ends overlapped. And I was doing a bunch of research on riveted mail a while back because I wanted to make some, and they had traditional tooling, which was much like a key punch. Um, so basically, uh, if you've ever seen like those sheet metal punches where you put the sheet metal in 
uh, a slot and there's a, a mandrel that then drives of the punch drives through a hole that's exactly the same size uh, to mm-hmm. punch a perfect hole. That's how they used to make riveted nails. They used to put the ends of the the mail pieces in and hit it and it used to flatten it and punch it at the same time. Um, yeah, it's a really neat process. And because the holes are so tiny, you can imagine the kind of tooling that was made for that. Uh, (laughs) cause it wasn't done. How often it was probably replaced. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it wasn't done with a drill because they didn't really have metal twist drills back then. If you, you know, if you think about it. Um, so yeah, it's a very complex, thing and i i decided that it was way too much work for what i wanted to do um especially like getting the riveting set up and all that kind of stuff because you have to make the pre-headed rivet (laughs) and the the pre-headed rivets are normally like one or two mil round stock (laughs) and they're only Mm -hmm. like four mil long (laughs) they are the fiddliest things ever um i had to rivet up a a little bit of chain mail back together (laughs) i hated every minute of it (laughs) um I um I don't know how much relevance it will have to um, riveted mail because, like I said, I don't have experience making it. But um, some absolute must-have tools for working with the stuff that I do um, is the the pliers that I use are all um, bent at forty-five degrees. In terms of ergonomics, that is a lifesaver mm. to to have. Um, to have that and a different range of sizes of them. I actually have them here because at my, at my <laughs> recording desk, I've got um, ones that are little three finger pliers. And I also have um, ones that are twice that size. Parallel pliers mm. are one that um, is a fun one to make yourself. If you are going to make your own tooling, especially since they are ridiculously expensive for what they are. Um, but parallel pliers are a big one. Yeah, um, and also supplies in the UK for like 65 bucks each. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They're not a cheap tool, but they are surprisingly easy to make. Um but try and have flat jaws on everything. Don't don't have um like jimping on the mm. inside of the jaws. You'd think, oh, that would make things a lot easier. And it is good to have a set that does have them, especially a small set of bent pliers with just on hand because sometimes you need to be able to hold something very securely. Um but an oddly specific tool which really helps, especially when the project starts getting really large, is a marlin spike. Hmm. You can actually isolate rings and on more complex weaves that can become very, very difficult in a large project. Um, so a marlin spike is a really great way to um, hold a point and a, like a reference point in the thing that you're making. Um it's sort of like a, it's, it's something you can make yourself. It's just a miniature marlin spike, really, with a, a total diameter that is um, just slightly larger than the size ring that you're using. So mm. it's tapered down and you can slot it through one spot, but it won't go pass all the way through. Um, very, very handy to have. It's one of those things that you'll only use it occasionally, but when you do have it, it uh, when you do need it, you really need it sort of thing. So. Uh, one last word on riveted mail. Uh, it was almost never made out of round rod. Like it was almost always made out of flat, um, flat rod. I don't know what you would call it. it it's sort of, um, it's the same dimension as you would use for like normal butted mail, but it's flat rather than round. Uh, and the reason for that is because it makes it easier to overlap. <laughs> True. 
Yeah, never would have thought of that. Mm. I mean, it blows my mind. Like I, I, um, I wanted to get into it, and it was funnily enough, it was watching the extended uh, behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings, where the people at Weddell <laughs> Workshop were just sitting in that cave mm-hmm. for like, you know, six months straight, just making <laughs> chain, but uh, yep. actual riveted mail, like proper riveted mail. Because yep. I don't know, a little bit of history, cinema history for you. Back in the day, people used to use gray woolen crochet, mm-hmm. loose Spray weave painted. crochet, and it would look like. Chainmail, like well, well, you know, not from a distance. Because no such thing as chainmail. The mm. neck beards are already emailing us, um, but it looks that like that on 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 camera. It looks like it, and um, famously, it was in um, Monty Python and the Holy mm-hmm. Grail. You can, if you look closely, they're all wearing crochet. <laughs> except except it was, king the king <laughs> he's wearing yeah, real but it's all well. it's expensive and and slow to make but um yeah for lord of the rings they're like no we're doing the real thing mm-hmm. they're all everybody's wearing real chainmail. <laughs> so they did it they actually did it. it's crazy most of the guys that i know that buy riveted mail these days like that that do riveted mail a lot of the guys that i know in the medieval reenactment community make their own mail but it's all butted mail um if they want to get riveted mail they buy it from india or turkey because it's stupid cheap for what it like for the amount of work that goes into it you can buy a mail hauberk from turkey for like 250 bucks (laughs) put it put it this way if you're at a ren fair and somebody comes up and sees that you're actually wearing scandalously wearing buttered mail instead of riveted Uh. mail and they point it out to you you've probably got a gauntleted fist that you can hit (laughs) So. Either that or you're wearing a sword, in which case. Yeah, so <laughs> butted mail it is. <laughs> All right, so with our lengthy list of emails out of the way uh, and inspirations done, that means it's time for Technique of the Week. Technique of the Week. 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 And Technique of the Week is microwaving your buttery ear kernels thanks to the fantabulous fellows at Nordic Edge suppliers of all things knife making so make sure you go and see them at the sydney knife show and until then restock your knife making needs at their awesome to use website nordicedge.com.au no matter how prepared i am (laughs) no matter how much i prepare myself for the ridiculousness i am always struck (laughs) you sent me one of their new hats Mm, i saw which I thought was a shot at the fact that I hadn't got a haircut and I felt so shamed that I went and got a haircut. <laughs> I haven't had a haircut in a while. I should do that. I was I was actually surprised. Um, this is not a shot at Nordic Edge whatsoever. I don't. I wouldn't expect anything less of Bjorn. But mm. um, when you see people, companies produce merch, it's usually on the cheaper side. Yeah, it's cheap crap, yeah. This is not. It's like full-on... It's got proper, like a brass clasp at the back for tension. It's got like a it's leather. Got a leather. Yeah, it's it's like real a, leather. Yeah. I, I sniffed the hat. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm there in my workshop and my wife walks in and I'm sniffing a hat. And I'm like, I think this is real leather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, it stayed on my head all day. And not just because my hair was a mess. Good quality merch. Yeah, good quality merch. It says a lot about the company. I'm looking forward to getting my knife vice. I'm getting a knife vice from them. Yeah, um, they look very sexy. My old knife vice is kind of 
like crap because it was a spare leftover <laughs> from a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, yes, new knife ice. <laughs> I don't think it'll fit Muso buoys though, so you know, we'll see. Well, you know, <laughs> just gonna get Bjorn to upgrade. <laughs> I need, a, I need a four so inch we'll, wide. We'll do the big, <laughs> the big fudge model that's like three times as big. Yeah, I need, I need a four inch wide knife. <laughs> Optional purchase is sword plates. That <laughs> That'll be useful, actually. Actually, now, I think they advertised it like that at uh, yeah, Blade Show, the, didn't they? they had a, and they had a sword in it. Yeah, because it it's got no end on it. So you can put swords in it, but you, it's not three and a half inches wide. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Can't be perfect. Well, guys, technique of the week. as That we know of does not have a name, so we're coining it the Farrier Flip. Not to be confused with the Fairy Flip. This is the Farrier Flip, mm. uh, made uh, very popular by the uh, the awesome Ben Abbott on Forged in Fire. It's a it's a great technique, and you actually get to see people like if you follow World Champion Blacksmiths on YouTube with Craig Turnicker and that, you'll see them do it a lot. Farriers use this technique a lot yep. because they use turning hammers, um, and the process is the turning hammer has a flat side and a round side, and while you're hammering, you have seconds before the heat has gone. So the key to working efficiently is getting as much done per heat as possible. Um, and the, those two different sides of a turning hammer have very different functions. So mid-swing, as the hammer is being raised up into the air without slowing or missing a beat, you'll see some blacksmiths flip the hammer, like spin it in their hands so that one face turns to the back and the back face turns to the front and they'll suddenly be using the rounding side instead of the flat side or vice versa. And Mm. being able to do that mid-swing is something that's worth practicing because when, especially when you're working small stock, that heat disappears quick. Yeah, I mean, it's really useful even in like cross peens, straight peens, any kind of peen hammer. Um, being able to transfer between the face and the peen mid-swing and not like interrupting your p- flow can be incredibly useful and incredibly important when you're working on small stock especially. Because mm, um, it's literally seconds that oh, you've yeah. got to count. Like when I'm making leaves, um, you know, when I'm using a cross peen or a straight peen and I'm trying to peen the leaf out and then I want to use the flat face, if I am taking a second to stop, flip the hammer over and then start again, the leaf is cold. <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's over. <laughs> and nobody likes a cold leaf. No. Well, that's where, how you end up with crack. Yes. And you shouldn't do crack. <laughs> yes. So um, <clears throat> <laughs> you. Uh, it, this is why uh, it's, it's great to have an ovular handle because it allows you to index it uh, and you or should be able to without ever having to look at yeah uh, you should be able to without ever having to look at the hammer have it spin in your hand and just by feel know that the the, the new face has changed around you don't end up slapping your anvil with the side of your hammer <laughs> um, because it's it should be able to index it in your hand it's worth practicing um it also being able to do it accurately within the space of a stroke without breaking your rhythm is the ideal, basically. Mm. That being said, once you've become familiar with your hammer and you've become well practiced, you kind of do it without thinking. You know, it, mm. it becomes a second nature movement. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, give it a go. 
Uh, add to your repertoire if it is not already there. Hmm. And so, over an hour into the show, we're finally getting to our topic of the week. Yay! <laughs> Which was requested, actually, on the last episode. Uh, I think it was by Trace, wasn't it? So. Who emailed in again. I don't know. I can't remember. But uh, it was talking about choosing your first anvil. And we said we would talk about the different shapes that you find on anvils. Because different anvils from different countries and for different tasks all look very different. Mm. And he wanted to know what makes what bit do what and why they have them. Because a, a Sawyer's anvil looks very different to a London pattern, which looks different again to a German pattern and a French pattern and the, the church window anvils and also the the filipino domed anvils and hmm. all sorts of weird and wonderful things that are out there sam used to have a farrier's anvil mm-hmm. they all have different weird and wonderful shapes and they all have a reason for being there there's no such thing as an anvil with extend extraneous stuff on it mm. that doesn't need to be there and so um Hopefully, this can give you a little bit of insight if you are choosing your own anvil of what to look for to have it match your work. Yeah. And I mean, at its core, an anvil is just a flat, hard surface that you're using to hit stuff on. Well, maybe flat. Maybe flat. Sometimes flat. It's a hard surface that you hit on. There are anvil stones Mm. from like the early Bronze Age and early Iron Age. Um, Yeah. In most Western-style anvils, the surface will be somewhat flat, at least. <laughs> in a lot of Eastern countries... Most of the surface. In most Eastern countries, however, domed anvils are quite popular. Nepal, um, mm. as Alex pointed out, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Taiwan, stuff like that. I've seen a lot of domed anvils over there. Um and yet they can still make things straight, which is something that always annoys me. The idea of having a perfectly flat anvil, meaning you can get something perfectly flat, is bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not how steel works. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, in the center of any anvil will be the solid core of your anvil, the main forging surface. In... Uh, in terms of a Sawyer's pattern... The pat- bit that has feet. Yeah. The Sawyer's pattern anvil is literally just the core That's of... That's where it stops. Yeah. It's it's literally a <laughs> London pattern anvil that's had like that hasn't had the horns attached yet. <laughs> mm. it's- and they've left it usually much softer than you'll find on yeah. uh, traditionally horned anvils. The Sawyer's anvils, by necessity, were softer. Yeah. So that they didn't leave marks and dents in your nice saw blade that you were trying to straighten. Mm. they're a sacrificial piece that were designed to be maintained in their own right in order to keep their face uh, in good shape. Mm. And they traditionally did not have sharp corners, nice round corners all around the top. Uh, Sometimes they would have a sharp side uh, or be dressed in a very specific way, but most of the time rounded sides. Um, But did you see, I'm just going to do a slight aside. Do you follow Sergol Forgeworks I or Sergol Ironworks? Did you see that um, amazing, I think it was Japanese anvil that was still attached to the stump that had been buried? And they, the stump itself was so um, unique that they excavated the entire thing, stump and anvil together. Um, I did and restored not, it but I'm looking it up piece. now. 
<laughs> it is incredible. And it's one of the most unique looking anvils that I've ever seen uh, from history. Oh, yeah, it's, I did uh, see that. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. So is it Sergol Toolworks? Uh, it's Ironworks? Sergol Forge. Sergal Forge. Everybody oh. go look that up because um, re- recently. And it's a Vietnamese. Yeah, I don't know how to. It's a Vietnamese animal. Vietnamese. From pre World War II. Japanese for some reason. <clears throat> and it's, it's amazing. And the stump that it's attached to is incredible. Mm. Um, but the shape of that anvil defies anything you would think of as an anvil mm. uh, when, you, when you bring to mind what an anvil looks like. And yet, it still has all of the characteristics. It's just Picassoed into a. <laughs> A strange shape. It, it really does. It, it's kind of, it's got like the forging breast of like a, a Swedish pattern anvil. It's got the mm-hmm. flat surface of a London pattern or whatever pattern anvil you want to think of. It's got almost what looks like two scrolling shelves side by side with like a space between them that could be used as a farrier's turning post. Mm-hmm. And it has, then it has a random bickern slash horn just jutting out from the side (laughs) yeah yeah it's just a little one it's it's strange but it's also like oddly attractive like i could see myself using that like it looks very functional and i have to say the way they mounted that anvil is absolutely amazing and i love it and i want it (laughs) yeah they Absolutely. they actually carved because um, like the 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 center of the anvil for those that haven't seen it yet is hollow like it's got feet like a French pig pattern anvil which is one of my favorite kinds of mm-hmm. anvil and basically they have shaped by obviously carving and burning the shaped the log so that it perfectly nestles inside the hollow between the feet mm-hmm. of the anvil it looks amazing I love this thing I want it. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because it defies everything that you think of when you think of an anvil, and yet it has all of the functionality that you could need mm. in an anvil. Man, um, you just, do everything. And it, it just goes to, sh- it just goes to show that you don't actually need to have an anvil that looks a certain way. You just need to perform a certain way, and that performance comes from the individual components that an anvil has, uh, rather than the overall anvil itself. And so. Uh, a horn is used for uh, drawing it's used for scrolling it's used for uh, anything where you need to um, f- especially in conjunction with like a rounding hammer to round multiply surface. your force from the other side because it's you're only going to be hitting in a, a narrow profile on a round surface so it's phenomenal for drawing things out very quickly mm. um and is, is used for that. And norm, next to that is going to be most of the time, not always, but most of the time, connected a uh, called a slitting shelf. Hmm. And that is usually left soft, uh, but not always. Sometimes it's left hard, but it's designed to be sacrificial and redressed over and over again. Um, and on particularly old anvils, when you find it, you might find that the horn just runs straight up to the main face of the anvil simply because it's been redressed so many times that it's now just <laughs> level with the horn. But oftentimes you need to work a slitting chisel uh, or, a, or a hot cut from the top down into the anvil. And you can't do that on the face of the anvil because you'll mar up your beautiful face, although a lot of people still did. Um, but that's shelf is specifically there. If you're doing a lot of top work with with slitting chisels and things, you kind of want that 
on your anvil unless you're going to be willing to throw a sacrificial plate on top of your face. Which I highly advise. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then you look at like a German pattern anvil, like the Beamish anvils, for example, uh, and there is a second horn sticking out the other side of the anvil. Instead of a heel, it's sort of like a half heel, half horn that's a square horn. Mm. Incredibly so useful. still goes up to... Oh, it's so useful. It's especially useful to be able to have access to both a round and a square horn. Mm. Um, it's just also two opportunities for it to stab you in the leg as you walk past <laughs> rather than just one, which is great. Um, but, yeah, um, having that a, a square horn actually gives you a longer face as well as the ability to use, uh, you know, for, for bending purposes and, and wrapping purposes and things like that. Um, so the long face allows you to do straightening exercises, um, on a smaller anvil. Like I've got a 40 kilo beamish anvil, um, but that square horn actually gives me, I think it's about 55, 60 centimeters Mm -hmm. of length all up. Whereas on a 40 kilo anvil of just like a London pattern, Mm -hmm. I might expect to get 30 centimeters of, of face if I was lucky. (laughs) Yeah, no, like having that square horn is amazing and stuff like the scrolling shelf. um, Well, that lengthens your face in the other way. In the the horizontal, yeah. Yeah, not only does it give you that nice, because a scrolling shelf actually goes out the underside of it. It goes out at an angle, a 45 degree angle or thereabouts, and it allows you to curl things over, which you can do on a round horn, um, but... A scrolling shelf also extends the face of your anvil out forwards, which is usually very sort of knife length, average knife length, unless you're working on a muso buoy. <laughs> it gives you a really, you can sort of be standing square with your anvil and hold that uh, work and have that nice flat surface extended out across the scrolling shelf. It's a very handy thing to have, but something that you don't see on many anvils at all, scrolling shelves. Mm. They tend to be quite rare. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's fairly common on like German pattern anvils and some Swedish mm. pattern anvils. Um, mostly that you know kind of. But if you look at it anvil. on a global level, it's, yeah, it's nah. the minor- minority of anvil types that have one. Um, on a- one thing that is a little bit more common is below the level of the face, and that is an upsetting block. Yeah, which is What's like the name a- of Roy's anvil again, Olga. Olga, that's yeah. right. It's it's such she's, an underrated piece of the of the anvil as well. Like I found myself using mine more way more than I thought I was going to cuz I do a mm. lot more upsetting than I thought I was going to. One of the things that I think a lot of beginner blacksmiths Oh, I upset people all the time. Well, one of the things one of the things that I think a lot of beginner blacksmiths forget is upsetting. Like doing upsetting on their work. And that's why you end up with so many people that end up with over thin things like they thin things out too much when they're tapering and things like that because they forget to upset the material first um especially if you're doing forge welds and stuff like that like on uh drop tong welds for like tong reins if you're not upsetting the end of that bath before you make your scarf then you're actually going to end up with an over thin weld area Um, and even people forging in a 90 a, 90, mm. a square 90 degree angle uh, you've got to upset that first you've got to have that mass otherwise it's kind of just look weird yeah and having that that strikeable surface that is well below the anvil face means that you don't have to lift your hammer like up above your head to try and <laughs> to try and upset things you can get a decent swing on it 
Um, so yeah, it's an incredibly useful piece. And especially if it's on the far side of your Andrel from you, it means that if the work kicks back, it's only going to kick back into the body of the anvil, not into your chest. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that I've had happen a couple of times. It's just not fun. This is why you yeah. should wear another, yep. an apron. <laughs> Absolutely. And not have bare feet in the forge. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> One thing you may see um, quite commonly uh, off sh- shooting off the side of a London pattern anvil, for instance, are farrier's lugs. And this yeah. is where I had my old farrier's anvil that you mentioned earlier, had farrier's lugs. And the lugs are basically just a turning fork that is on the side of your anvil. Um, people make turning forks for their hardy hole and stuff like that, just a jutted up V-shaped piece of metal that you use to bend bar stock. That is it all It gives you incredible is. leverage. Oh, yeah. Amazing amounts of leverage. And basically, it's just a fixed point for you to be able to do that. And I yeah. underutilized mine for the first several years I had it until I realized that that's what they were for. <laughs> it, was in- <laughs> it was incredibly useful for untwisting um, like large uh springs like spring yeah car springs coil springs amazingly useful seat springs <laughs> no i never uncoil my seat spring my seat spring stays <laughs> as it is um and even um an, an underrated and underlooked at feature of anvils that people usually don't find out as important until it's too late uh is the feet arrangement mm. Um, how you are able to mount your anvil to a surface is excruciatingly important. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of anvils out there that don't have a really good, clear means of being able to affix it to something very cleanly. Usually you have to come up with these sort of janky ways of doing it. And it's, it's quite unfortunate, really, because sometimes you'll find a lovely anvil, but it's just got no way to mount it cleanly. Yeah. You end up having to do some sort of botched, jerry-rigged thing that holds it down. And understanding that the way that you mount the anvil is directly proportional to how quiet you make the anvil. And how effective it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, a couple of features that you might not see quite regularly on anvils are things like a breast on the anvil, which is a big sloping side to one side of the anvil, uh, commonly seen on quote unquote church windows anvils, um, which people have theorized that the church windows themselves may be used as like a swage with the, the anvil on its side, which it can be, but I don't think that was its original intention because there are 150 kilo church window anvils. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, you would not lay that thing down on its side. Uh, Not unless you wanted to get it. Not unless unless you had like 10 people to help you get it back up. Um, Or one Seth would. Well, this is true. Yeah, Seth probably would. Would. (laughs) Um, But a, a (laughs) a breast is normally used by people who are using a striker. Um, so you would have the striker stand on the side that the breast was on. And because it doesn't have that sharp 90 degree angle to the edge of the anvil face, you're not going to have an easy place to break pieces off of the anvil when you accidentally hit it with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. When, and it is when. <laughs> it's, not, it's not if, it's when. Um, you shouldn't mm-hmm. really be using strikers on normal anvils unless you're doing relatively light work. Um, because a, a strike to the edge of a nice, sharp 90-degree anvil face can cause some pretty nasty chipping. And so yeah. that's what breasted anvils and striking plates were for. <laughs> uh. Yeah. 
And a striking anvil is a, a relatively inexpensive thing to add to your shop if you're going to be using a striker a lot. Mm. If it's a regular occurrence, just get a striking or make a striking anvil. They're not difficult to make. To oh, no, insanely easy. Uh, unless you want a hardy hole in it. Yeah, but then um, there are companies that bring, make those. Which brings us to the hardy hole. It's um, quite possibly one of the most important parts of an anvil. Mm. And yet a lot of anvils use very odd sizes, <laughs> especially cheaper anvils. Um, yes. This, this, the standard is um, usually an inch, although it depends country to country. Uh, it does change. Um but some of them, like I think um, John Switzer's is inch and a half and he has an insert that he drops into it yeah. to make it an inch. Yeah, my, um, my old, the old London pattern I had was inch and a quarter. Yeah. And you can get run into some problems with some, especially some of the modern um, produced anvils if you're not getting a, an old secondhand one. You'll never find this problem in an old secondhand <laughs> one. Um, but some of the newer ones, they don't really clean the inside of those holes or sometimes they're a little uh, weirdly sort of tapered on one side and they'll swing yeah. around because they haven't drifted it neatly uh, and you may have to do some work. So if you are shopping for one, check. Take like a ruler or something or something that is some inch stock that you can slide in there uh, to make sure that it's not going to lead to problems because it's, it's just poor manufacturing that leads to this. Yeah. Cause they don't drift them anymore. They just cast them that way. And so if the casting, yeah. like if the, uh, if the it silica, in the cast. Yeah, if the silica mold piece that they use for the hardy hole fails somehow, then the metal just moves into that area. Um, yeah. So you end up yeah. with a really crappy hardy hole. <laughs> and, um, we talked on last episode uh, about the uh, forge welded anvils, mm-hmm. the old older ones. Um, something to think out, uh, think about. Like if you're if you're perusing one, look to see. You may see the early signs of cracking around mm-hmm. where those forge welds may happen. Um, so look at, as a ring around where the hardy hole is and around where the horn meets. Very big point. If you're buying a secondhand used old anvil. If it's freshly painted on the sides, be very careful. <laughs> Run. There was a guy. There was a guy on an Australian blacksmiths page uh, two years ago that bought an anvil, and it turns out that the previous owner, the the horn, had, like the heel, had completely cracked off. And what they did was they <gasps> they liquid nailsed it back in place, and then <laughs> used car body filler to fill like the the leftover gaps, and then painted over it. <laughs> She'll be right. <laughs> and then obviously they like they face welded like the, the face and then ground it back so that you couldn't see that there was a like a separation in the in the face. I I bet you they charged still charge like seven hundred bucks for it. Seventeen fifty, because it was like a hundred and fifty kilo anvil. Oh, um and yeah, like he oh. was not happy. <laughs> no. So yeah, just, just be buyer's remorse. Be very careful buying a freshly painted old anvil. Because mm-hmm. most old anvils are all rusted and like, you know, the paint's chipped off years ago and stuff like that. That's normal. If it's freshly painted, they're covering something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just just straight up. That's just dodgy. Well, people dodgy are dodgy. And don't approve. And given that like anvils are an incredibly expensive commodity these days. They're so hot right now. Oh, well, they are. But there are many companies that are making brand new anvils, like fresh out of the shop that are amazing. So... If someone's yeah, trying to yeah. charge you seventeen fifty for an for an old anvil, just buy a new one. They're about the same yeah. price. 
it's I mean it's nice to work on a bit of history, but it's you, they usually come with more problems than good things. Yeah. Yeah, unless you're buying like a 250 kilo like German pattern anvil from Petting House or Raffling House or something like that. I'm going to put it out there, controversial, potentially controversial statement for 99% of what our listenership is going to be doing. You don't need anything more than a 40 kilo anvil. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. Really 20 kilo for 99% of what our listenership is doing. But a 40 mm. kilo will guarantee you a lot of future proofing for your work. Yeah. A 40 kilo anvil is fine and you can carry it yourself. Yeah, yeah that is a big bonus. It's a big deal. I mean, everybody thinks they, they dream of the giant anvil. I dream of the giant anvil. Like my biggest anvil is 320 pounds. I don't even know what that is <laughs> in, in kilograms. Uh, it's a lot. 120 kilos. It's it's chunky. It's a thick boy with two C's and a Q. Um, and if I need to move that somewhere, no, nah, it's staying there. I'm not moving it. <laughs> my, the, the front of my forge is open because eh? I know nobody's going to steal it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I'll unless, admit. Unless Seth Wood comes in the night. <laughs> I'll admit, like I bought the 80 kilo um, pattern, or the 80, 80 kilo beamer shamble, and I was thinking, you know, like, oh, I really want the 110. I really want the 250. And some days when I look at it, I'm like, oh, I'd really love the really big anvil. But honestly, it would just take up more more space in my shop. Like the 80 kilo yeah. anvil is more than enough for literally everything that I do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sam works on big hammers and things, so it's just, yeah. Pete, you don't need as big an anvil as you think. No. Having a big anvil is nice, but it's really not necessary, especially in a small shop. Especially if it's well-made. You, if, it, if you've had a nicely made anvil that is hardened nicely uh, and has all the good shapes in it, you can actually get away with quite a small anvil. You can get away with a 20 kilo just fine if it's made really well. That being said, there is one dream anvil that I have that if I ever got the chance to buy one, I would immediately get, like, I would take it, is an old British Cutler's anvil, which they normally weigh about 500 pounds, um, but they have dovetails in the face, and the dovetails mm. are there to add tooling, and so literally they would make dovetailed tooling, and they would have various tools and all that kind of stuff locked into these dovetails with wedges, um, so you could have like 16 different tools. It's also quite common in nail making anvils as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would kill for one of those, but they're incredibly rare. Um, mm. But yeah, the, I mean, I don't need one, but <laughs> it's just, it's just, I really want one. Um, we all have the dream tools. Oh, yeah. I mean, it never stops because oh, you eventually get them and you do. You do, <laughs> You eventually get them. But then by the time you get them, you have new dream tools. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, yeah, I think if I won Lotto, I would probably commission someone to make a, like an English Cutler's Anvil. <laughs> yeah. Get it CNC. You want enough, it'd be like, Joey, I'm calling you. Yeah. Joey Van make me one. That's it. Make I'll me an pay Anvil. Pay you a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have to hire but, like um, a giant forge for him to work in. Yep. I... I um, don't remember the circumstances of the forge he used to work in like way back in the day, but like he would finish his videos with that long shot of mm. him working and he's just surrounded by hundreds of tongs. And <sighs> it's like the dream workshop. It was so beautiful. I could not believe when he gave that up. Like when, when he posted that he was leaving and the reason why, I was like, you idiot. 
<laughs> what was the reason why? It's because he didn't like, want to. What he, reason could possibly make him? So, like in the video that he posted about it, uh, you can't find it anymore because he's deleted like ninety nine percent of his videos on his channel. Um, mm. I don't know why. I'm really upset about it because there was a lot of videos I wanted to go back and watch, and he's deleted them all. But um, in the original video when he quit, he quit because he was no, he wasn't willing to use modern uh, techniques to make stuff and so therefore he was charging ridiculous amounts to make traditionally joined stuff forge welded riveted that kind of thing uh he didn't want to mm-hmm. use an electric welder he didn't want to use you know like mig or tig or arc or anything like that and that was the main reasons because he couldn't get enough customers because he, his prices were too high um and he wouldn't take that step down in his well what he saw was a step down in his work to uh to make ends meet so he had to give up the shop and i was like god just <laughs> yeah take the I, can, I can dig it <laughs> i mean i can dig it. i like i understand it would be, it's an it would be painful to thing. walk away from that but the, i guess, the, I guess the shop was it shows it shows how much it meant to him well i mean joey epitomizes what we've been saying for a long time is that blacksmithing is no longer a f- like a trade it's an art form and Joey is an artist, and like no one oh, can yeah, argue that Joey yes. is not an artist. <laughs> mm. um, and his art was traditionally joined blacksmithing stuff. Like his his stuff is traditionally made, one hundred percent done by hand. And so I totally understand and beautifully that. done. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I understand it. But like the the <laughs> the part of me that's looking at that giant workshop that he had and all of the tooling and. I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah, but I, I see. It, I'm like, so you're saying it's free now? <laughs> well, when he posted, when he posted that that going or like the the quitting video, he was selling like all of the gear. There were oh. tons, literally boxes. You could see them because he posted like a video of all, all boxes and boxes of tongs and hammers and top tools and stuff. But it was for local pickup only. Uh, and I was like, mm, "How much is a flight to the Netherlands?" <laughs> I'm, I'm moving to Europe. <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyway, I can just see you know Torbjorn just hopping a couple of countries <laughs> and just sliding into that workshop. Just say, "Leave it all here." <laughs> it's, it's, yep, I'll take it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like a furnished house, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, he'd make the most of it too. Uh, I would really like his collab between those two. I really liked his most recent video of uh, growing flax and making the, a ripple. The flax thing, yeah, it's, that's yeah. a dream of mine. Was always to like grow my own flax and then make linen and stuff. Yeah, <sighs> I'm such a, never too late to start. Sam. Such a traditionalist. Well, if I had like uh, anywhere to grow flax. <laughs> I would start small. I don't live Have in my own house. Garden. <laughs> my the Keep entire in your bathroom, the entire garden, the, even the bathroom doesn't belong to me. <laughs> Have have the the little you know the grow tent lined with mylar and the grow lights and and the cops will break in and they'll be like you're growing weed in your house and they open up it's like oh it's he's growing flax <laughs> oh he's just a nerd they're gonna arrest you for being weird. <laughs> Actually, I really liked someone that suggested in his uh, in his comments that he should actually make his own linseed oil out of the the, the flaxseed because like flaxseed mm-hmm. flax is linseed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, like because he uses linseed oil to finish all of his blacksmithing stuff, he could he could make boiled linseed oil out of his own mm. linseed now. Yeah, it's, absolutely. I thought that's what he was doing. Well, maybe it is. When I don't I know. Saw the thumbnail. Yeah, because he's still he, he's talking about um, making a rake and stuff like that. So I'm imagining he's going to turn that flax into uh, linen at some point. Maybe he's I'm just going to point out for point out for posterity my knowledge of indoor growing of weed is theoretical only <laughs> sure it is <laughs> <laughs> on that note <laughs> don't forget guys we have a forgecast competition going uh, until the end of august till the 48 hour challenge is over mm. uh, and that is to make the best hurry hurry Mm. Our prize is going to be going to the one we think is the coolest. Not necessarily the best, but the coolest. We've already seen some people starting, and one person's making it out of round stock, which was, you know, like confidence. Oh, that is a lot of confidence. This is somebody that makes arrowheads for a living. Yeah. <laughs> like, but these, you know, like 25 mil round stock. I was like, woof, man, your arm must hurt right now. <laughs> mm hmm. That's but you know that's cool factor. That is that's very the cool. Sort of thing that we're looking I'm at. I'm wondering if they're going to like keep the the round stock handle, or if they're going to like make it square and do like a twist or something in it. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this the the cool can be achieved not just necessarily by the way the end product looks, but how it was made, what it was made from, mm. what it, what materials it's made with. We want we want cool factor, and that's what we're going to be judging it on. And plus, even if you don't win you end up with one of the coolest and most useful gardening tools around. And it's something that you can't really walk into a Bunnings and buy. No. Unless you want to get really busy on your angle grinder with a a trowel. Unless your Bunnings happens to be in Japan in Seki City or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Glorious Nippon steel. (laughs) Glorious, glorious Nippon barbecue sausages. I bet you they have their onions on top of their sausages. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they don't do those damn, uh, like, theme park ride <laughs> zigzags to get in the front door and give you, the, give you the stern look when you just walk in the exit hole. There's some, there's some deep Australian lore going on right now. <laughs> there's some foreign people. There are some shenanigans afoot. In Australia with our Bunnings. Yeah. Our national dish is bought at a hardware store. <laughs> the rest of it, the rest of it should not, should just make sense because of that one fact. Yeah. Just yep. accept it. All right. It, it is literally the recognized national dish of Australia. <laughs> yeah. It keeps going. Like every year they redo the poll because our government is desperate for us not to have a hardware store item as our national dish, and it keeps swinging between roast lamb and the Bunnings sausage. Yeah, Bunnings sausage is always going to win, though. I don't like. You always hate yourself after having it, <laughs> but you always get out of the car every time. And it's like, oh, they got the they got the snags on. You can't every not. time. You can't not like. If I, there I'm is pretty a snag sure they're sprinkling crack cocaine over <laughs> them while they're barbecuing them or something. 
Is One it- guy legit from his hot tub sent a drone with money on it to his nearby Bunnings that- to buy one, and he got arrested for that it. That was in WA, and he got <laughs> fined $25,000 for that <laughs> for that Bunnings snag. That was in Rocky. Wasn't there a that- crowdfunding opportunity to like pay the fine they- for him? They paid it off for him, yeah. Um, yeah. That was in Rocky. That was literally this like- This is how- This is patriotism. That was literally my local Bunnings. <laughs> when- when I heard that they, um, there was a, like a crowdfunded thing to pay the fine for him, I never felt so proud. Of the <laughs> hey, man, I am you are. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, honestly, my, one of my favorite things about Australia is the, the fact that we will lean into a, a, a joke as long as it's to fuck with foreigners. Mm. Like oh, yeah. the moment someone came up with the idea, and this is like people think that this is a legitimate Australian saying, but it was actually come up with on Reddit like five years ago. The idea of the 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 phrase "I'm not here to fuck spiders," right, was made up on Reddit by an Australian who just thought he'd fuck with some Americans, and then immediately it became mm. part of the Australian vernacular, which it is now. Anyone will swear it is an Australian saying. Yeah, and there is an unwritten law that if uh, you a foreigner is nearby and they ask you about drop bears, they every real. Australian, they have to say they're real. They are real. I lost my auntie's uncle's cousin to that to one of them. That's right, auntie's <laughs> cousin's former roommate's pet donkey. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, like if you if you're in public with another Australian and a foreigner asks a question, it doesn't matter what the other Australian says, you agree. That is the rule. Yep. Every time Sam is ep- absent from an episode, it's because he's literally <laughs> wrestling with huntsman spiders the size of a house. Yeah, 100% that. And he can't reach the microphone because no. of the screams oh, and mate, the blood. You, I, I just don't want to terrify our, our like you know our international audience with the, the blood Okay, screams. one last bit of Australian lore <laughs> before we go, because this could go on for a long time. <laughs> Did you did you read the news article about the Huntsman spider that made its way into a shipping container that ended up in a London pier? No, I didn't. They legitimately, this is not an exaggeration, <laughs> they legitimately shut down that pier because they thought there was an alien. They just because the people that worked at the pier opened the container and this clock spider ran out. <laughs> They panicked. They evacuated the entire thing, called in like a wildlife expert, and all of them who was separately when interviewed described it as the face hugger from Alien. <laughs> well, I mean, they're not wrong. It's freaking close. <laughs> and they called in like space experts and shit, awesome. thinking that there was like some. Because there was like thirty people corroborating this story, and like, and for- it was a freaking huntsman. But here's the thing: Australia sent an envoy to bring it home. Yeah, hey man, bring that boy yeah. home. Huntsmans are awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, and the funny thing is, huntsmans' bites aren't deadly. Like, they're not actually no, lethal. That's if you, <laughs> it's hard to get them to bite. Yeah, they're scaredy cats. They run. They, and they will jump. bite. They can bite, but they most likely won't bite. <laughs> but um, for those of you who don't know the the reference he was saying earlier, clock spider, look that up on Google and understand that yep. that clock is 30 centimeters in diameter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's at a Queensland native hunt, huntsman. Uh, huntsman spider. Yeah. Gotta love clock spider. 
It's really funny. Um, Tasmania has um, a lot of creatures which are exactly biologically identical to the the counterparts on the mainland. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, they thought they were different, but they're, they're not. They're, they're the same. Um, but they're all calmer here. Well, like magpies on the mainland will swoop you. When it's breeding oh season, magpies they'll are the go most swoop terrifying the hell ever. out of you. <laughs> and for decades, they thought that Tasmania had a different breed of magpie because they just never swoop you here it's all the weed in the air (laughs) yeah that's right it's because because it's it's, it's because it's because it's because they've been hanging out at alex's place (laughs) (laughs) but we have have huntsmans here as well and one of the worst things about huntsmans is that you go to like put a container over on the wall and and it moves faster than the speed of light yeah um but the ones in tasmania they're just like, oh, you got me. Yeah. The worst the worst things about us. <laughs> if they like, move, they like move like really slowly. Yeah. The, the worst thing about Huntsman's in, in WA is that they love hanging out above doors. Like for some yeah. reason, anytime there's a door, there's a Huntsman above it. And the problem with Huntsman's is that when they're scared, the first thing they do is jump. Yeah. And so when they jump, they fall. <laughs> and so it's quite regular in Australia to be walking through a doorway and have a Huntsman land on your head. <laughs> Just like the face hugger from Alien. <laughs> exactly. Actually, uh, a friend of mine's dad um, w- w- was taking off on his bike one day and he said goodbye to us, you know, put his helmet off and rode down the street. And he was halfway down the street when he flipped his visor down and suddenly crashed the bike. Turns out there was a huntsman. You on guys the- are just <laughs> watching calmly from the driveway. It's like, oh, he's got the speed wobble. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out he had a huntsman on the inside of his visor, and he flipped oh, it. Cool. He flipped it down and had this giant spider in his face, and immediately <laughs> lost his shit. <laughs> like, even though knowing they're not deadly, it's just the creepiest fucking thing you can think of. <laughs> Arachnophobia times yeah. a million. Mm-hmm. Huh. Anyway, enough with Australian law for now. Yep, that, that's that, we're starting our two new podcasts. One is <laughs> TV and movie reviews, yep. and the next one is going to be Australiana. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> mate. Anyway, if you have a question for the Forgecast, uh, send it through to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or slide into our DMs on Facebook and Instagram. And if they're looking for Sam, where can they find you? You can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, and the underscore kitchen underscore sink on TikTok, which I eventually will post to. Where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Redbubble, and TikTok as well, although for how long, I don't know. I've already gotten several strikes from them. And you um, can't comment on any of his content. No, no. Um, Actually, Nissa has more strikes than me. Well, I'm not surprised. She's vulgar. (laughs) Oh, it's just... It's disgusting. They don't. They do not like knives. No, they it's, really don't. It's mental. It's kind they of really sad. don't like knives. Yeah, but I think I've worked a way around it, and I can say it because then they don't listen to the Forgecast. The no. TikTok CEO does not listen to the Forgecast. Unlikely. Um, you, uh, they don't use people to look for the co- the bad content they don't want. They use uh, image recognition. Yeah. And um, 
I, I've been running my videos through um, an app which puts like video effects on them. So mm-hmm. it like, looks a little bit blurry or ghosted or something like that. And it throws the image recognition. So they nice. don't, it, everything's been getting through since then. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> maybe it. I will survive on TikTok. Who knows? And maybe I'll reopen commenting if I feel generous. I probably won't. Well, if you figure out that I that hate- works, you've got to like release how to do that so that all of our fellow knife making buddies can keep their fucking accounts. Yeah, well, it's just a, an app called CapCut. It's fun. Yeah, fair enough. Just get get CapCut. It's free, <laughs> and just make it. Put some put some distortion on your on your video. Done. Sweet. As Neil as Niels Vandenberg says, done. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right. Well, um, I won't be here next week. Won't uh, you? No, because I'm flying out Thursday night. All right, I'll have to get a guest. Yeah. I only just realized that like an hour ago when we started the Forgecast. And I was like, oh, crap. Fair enough. Anyway, so I'll see you in two weeks' time, guys. Yes. Maybe I'll take a holiday. We'll see. It's up to you. Let me know in the comments. (laughs) Should I A, take a holiday, B, do a podcast on my own, or C, get a guest on? drag some poor soul in to have to be locked into a room with, with me for an hour. <laughs> make, Alex, make, make Alex do it on his own. <laughs> Scream into the void for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'll practice my yodeling. <laughs> Alright. Yeah. Bye, guys. See you guys. Oh!